Welcome to Pebble in the Pond, a podcast that hopes to create a ripple of change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I'm the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year I have the pleasure of attending events to meet and connect with the most fascinating and accomplished people in mental health. Listen in as I go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand, from lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering to some listeners. If you feel you need assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. Hello listeners and thanks for tuning in to another episode. Raising children is no easy feat, so where can you turn when you need tried and trusted advice? Dr. Justin Coulson is one of Australia's most respected and popular parenting authors and speakers. He is sought after for his expertise in family life, relationships, and well-being and resilience. He is also the founder of Happy Families, in which Justin provides happiness, relationship, and parenting training to parents, teachers, and the corporate sector. Justin and his wife Kylie have been married for 20 years and are the parents of six daughters. He is the author of best-selling books, Nine Ways to a Resilient Resilient Child and 21 Days to a Happier Family. Whilst working in radio and raising his daughters, Justin realised he wasn't being the dad or husband he wanted to be. He went to uni and studied psychology, completing his PhD in psychology before spending a few years working as a researcher. Tune in to hear Dr. Coulson's insight into the key of parenting, what kids really want to be happy, what, some tips for parents to be better parents, challenges of parenting in today's fast-paced environment, and what excites and drives him to continue to evolve as a father, husband, and thought leader on parenting and happy families. Today, it gives me great pleasure to have a conversation with an amazing, inspiring man who's doing some wonderful things in uh, in the psychology field, and we welcome Dr. Justin Coulson. Nice to be with you, Sam. Yeah, thanks very much for joining us, Justin. And will you just tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into uh, doing what you're doing now? <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, so I used to be a radio announcer. When I finished high school, uh, I, I, I was possibly the worst student ever to go through the New South Wales education uh, system. Uh, my parents actually paid a whole lot of money to uh, put me through a, a fancy pants private school on the New South Wales Central Coast. And uh, I, I hate to say it, I feel terrible guilt over it these days. I, I mean, I'm, I'm okay. I don't need any therapy about it, but I just wish that I'd been a better son to them. But they spent all that money and <laughs> I, I just squandered the money because I was barely at the school. I was always wagging it and going surfing. Uh, and all I wanted to do was be a radio DJ. So, that right? so I finished high school and um, uh, sort of potted around a bit. I, I did some volunteer work for my church uh, for a couple of years mm-hmm. and then uh, got into radio. I really made a go of it and ended up at some of the biggest radio stations in the country, working as a mornings announcer and a music director and hanging out backstage with all of the global superstars that were in town and you know really living the, the fancy life. Wow. Uh, in, in fact, the last place that I worked was at Brisbane's B105 uh, and – you know, my, my role was basically to hang out with the music company executives. They'd take me out to dinner and uh, all of Brisbane's best restaurants. That was the number one radio station because I grew up in Brisbane, but I remember that. I mean, it probably still is, is it? I mean, that's a, that's a very well-renowned um, radio station. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Uh, I don't know if it uh, is, is doing so well anymore. I, I haven't really looked at commercial radio for a long time. But, <laughs> but I was there um, back in the days for anyone who is – from Bris Vegas uh, of Jamie Dunn and Ian Skippen and Penny Cooper and Dean Kesby and all these big radio names in Brisbane. Uh, and I was on the radio with those guys. But I, I had a couple of kids of my own. My wife and I had been married and had a three-year-old and a, a newborn baby. And Sam, the, the only way to say it uh, is that I was really failing as a father. I was making all sorts of mistakes and getting all sorts of things wrong and um, really, really just not doing a nice uh, job um, in terms of, you know, being being dad, I guess, I was making a mess of it. And I felt terrible about that. And one day in particular, things got particularly bad. Uh, and I really got very upset at my daughter and treated her badly and recognized just how badly I had made a mess of things. So that afternoon when my wife came home, I told her exactly what had happened. 
um, and said, I, I need to do something about this. I, I can't remain dad and husband uh, the way that I'm behaving. And, and my wife, who's always careful and sensitive and gentle in what she says, um, essentially looked me in the eyes and said, you're right. <laughs> you're doing oh. a pretty lousy job. Uh, and, and she said, come to think of it, not only are you struggling and failing as a father, but you're not much of a husband either. Oh. Um, you know, she really laid it down. And, and, and there were never any threats from her or anything like that, but she made it really clear that uh, the relationship that we were in needed to change so that we could um, so that we could make it work, I guess. Uh, so I ended up quitting my radio career. I went back to school and I had to get into TAFE and then I went to uni. I finished uh, five years of TAFE and uni. So I worked full-time. Uh, sorry, I worked part-time while I studied full-time and ended up with an honours degree in psychology, first-class honours at the University of Queensland, Sandstone University, St. Lucia, all the fancy stuff. Uh, yeah. and, and kind of got to the end of that degree and said to Kylie, um, this has changed our lives. This has been extraordinary. I mean, we've... We've, we've now got four kids. <laughs> we've been paying a mortgage all this time. Uh, and I've been working weekends and nights and studying full time. And it, you know, it was just extraordinary, intense challenge. And, and yet, on reflection, one of the best times of our lives. I uh, but gonna, I said, I, Yeah, sorry. I was going to say, well, that, well, that would have been so tough. I mean, it's hard enough just to study full time anyway, let alone to raise a family and work part time still, right? Well, my wife is an extraordinary support, and, and I was really able to concentrate on my studies because of her. Uh, but the other thing uh, was, you know, not only was I doing that full-time study, but I was I, I was actually working uh, a part-time job uh, through the week, and then on the weekends I was doing part-time furniture removals, to, you know, like oh. lounges and fridges and pianos and that kind of thing for people so that I could get some extra cash in the door. Um, but, but at the end of that period, Sam, I kind of realized that um, – a psychology degree in and of itself um, probably doesn't really equip me for what I wanted to do. I discovered that I wanted to help people change their families. And that meant either doing a master's and becoming a therapist yeah. or doing a doctorate and becoming a researcher or doing a combination of the two. As it happens, I applied for the clinical program and got in on uh, two separate occasions. But in the end, I elected to only do the, the doctoral work and um, moved to Wollongong. Three and a half years later, I graduated with my PhD in psychology with a focus on positive psychology and family relationships yeah. and ended up working as an academic for another couple of years. Just loved Wollongong, loved the university, loved everything about being there, uh, worked as a sort of contract lecturer and, um, and and researcher, wrote papers for other people, all that sort of thing. And uh, started writing books and being asked to do media interviews and ran a few seminars and discovered that that's what I really loved. And so we eventually left the radio, uh, sorry, left the, the academic world uh, and I started my own business. And for the last mm, eight, nine years now, I've written books and given talks around the country and done everything that I can to help families to be happier. And, and in the intervening time as well, my wife and I have had our fifth and sixth children. So... Um, we've we've got six daughters. Uh, I've written six books, <laughs> and, mm. and um, I kind of exist to make families happy. How, how old were your kids when you when you left Brisbane and went to Wollongong? Were, were they have been at school? The older ones? Yeah, yeah. The two eldest. Uh, the, the the eldest was in like uh, I think grade three when we got to okay. Wollongong, and the second child was just due to start school, so she was leaving her um, her preschool year and heading into big school. And, uh, you know, that, that move was really disruptive. People always talk yeah. about how um, how resilient kids are and how they're fine when you move. You know, they'll make new friends and it'll be okay. But it was really tough. They they struggled. They didn't want to leave. In fact, Kylie and I didn't want to leave. Yeah. Uh, but we, we felt like this was the right thing to do for our family. And, and in the end, it ended up being okay. But it, it was a really hard transition for the kids. And and obviously yourselves as well. I mean, you don't forget during this time, you guys were also, uh, you know, in your own relationship. You were busy doing your own your study and going full into that as well. So, I mean, mate, it would have been tough to juggle at that time for kids and doing all that stuff. But I guess, like you said, Kylie being such a supportive uh, and linchpin of the family, was that a big help for you at the time? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I can't even put into words. Uh, I mean, n- none of this could have been accomplished without Kylie and her support. And um, I, I really, I, I, you know, I've, I've done the study and I've got the degree, but, but it's our project together. You know, we've, we've done all of this together and, and it's been uh, Kylie's the reason that I was actually able to do it without, without doubt. And you, you know, in terms of moves, though, the move after nine years, we ended up staying in Wollongong for quite some time, but the move after nine years from... Uh, from the coast back up to Brisbane. Brisbane, that was that was the one that really hurt. We had a daughter in year twelve, a daughter in year nine, a daughter wow. in year seven. A, you know, a, a couple of us in in primary school. It was that was a tough one, and uh, we've been here for nearly four years now. And uh, I think that we're only just starting to really feel like we've found our feet. Is that right? I mean, because you think, obviously you had daughters at varying ages then, but also yourselves. Um, what drove you back to Brisbane? Was it another opportunity with your business? Was it just family? No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I could have quite happily stayed in Wollongong for the rest of my life. It's just, I think it's one of Australia's great untapped secrets. Uh, but we we had some uh, really strong feelings that it was just time for our family to get back up to Brizzy. Uh, mm. You know, as I said, I'm from the central coast of New South Wales, but my wife's family are up here, and uh, we felt like, for for a range of different reasons, we have we have a faith background, and we, we we put it down to that. We felt like we were guided to head back here for reasons that we couldn't understand. And over the last few years, a number of those reasons have sort of shown up and we've been like, oh, maybe that's why we're back. And I know that, you know, as humans, we're narr- we, we, we make narratives and we make meaning out of circumstances, but we feel like there was some sort of a um, an external pull to bring us here. And since we've been here, we've uh, we, we've certainly struggled. It hasn't been easy. Uh, and, and I kind of thought that it was supposed to be easy. You know, I mean, I've got a PhD in psychology. I know how to deal with this. And, and yet, uh, no matter how resilient we make our kids and no matter how effectively we massage and manage the environment. Uh, we're supposed to go through hard things and that's how we grow and this has been a hard thing for our family. Do you, do you often uh, think back to that instance where you're, you, know, you had, <clears throat> had that regret, regretful incident with your daughter and then your wife looked at you and said, well, you know, uh, what did she say? I agree or uh, I... Um, with yeah, the, you, 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 you are actually pretty lousy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, do you, do you think about that? So that's such a turning point in your life where, I mean, if you didn't take that action, I mean, do you often sort of think about where you would be? Uh, I've, I've thought through that many times. I mean, this is one of those sliding doors moments, yeah. I guess, and one of those things where you, you, you never really know. My belief is that that was a, a, a central turning point, an absolutely key uh, moment in our lives, and it led to enormous change for the better. And, and you know, not only did it help my family in ways that will probably never be um, never be able to be measured, but I think that it's given me the opportunity with the subsequent decisions that we've made to have an impact in the world that again becomes immeasurable. You know, generations from now, people are going to be looking after their kids the way their parents did and the way their grandparents did. And it's just that their parents and grandparents listened to some of the stuff that I taught, taught them and it made them better as a result. Um, I, I kind of, I, I, I love to, I love to contemplate on, on just the impact and it's not about ego. It's just, yeah. it's, it's out of gratitude. I'm so grateful for what I've learned and the fact that I can help other people. Uh, and, you know, I get emails with a pretty good level of consistency from people who simply say, Thank you. What a difference. So grateful. Um, our family is different because of what you've shared with us. And is that a big part of what's driving you to continue along the path that you're on? Or is that just a nice uh, side benefit that, that is um, yeah, yeah, goes well, with I it? mean, I don't, I don't do what I do so that I can get thank you emails. Um, <laughs> but what I do is I, I, I just feel like this is why I'm on the earth. Yeah. Um, you know, existentially, I feel as if I, I was Based on this earth at this particular time, so that I could make a difference here, I've um, I've gained a whole lot of knowledge and a whole lot of skills, and uh, found ways to communicate that knowledge, and it changes people's lives. And I, you know, all of the research in the world, the very best research tells us that if you want to be happy, you find a way to serve others, mm. and you spend your days making a difference, making an impact, helping people. 
that's that's the secret to happiness. I don't know if it's the secret to success. It depends on how you define success, I guess. But yeah. it's the secret to happiness and well-being. And and um, and I I feel like I get to live a happy life every single day because every single day I'm finding different ways to help this person or that person to make their family happier. And of all the things that you can help people with, family relationships have got to be the most important thing of all. Mate, I was just thinking that 100%. Like I think about, I mean, you're in such a, what a great spot to be in. I mean, not only are you benefiting your immediate family and the people around you in your circle of life, but you get to go out and do it for others. And I mean, it certainly sounds like it's definitely your passion and being such a great communicator. It's no wonder you're doing so well at it. Um, yeah, thanks, Sam. You know, I want to pick up on something you just said there. You mentioned that it's a, it's a passion, and um, I I think I think that's a really great word to use, but not in the sense that we typically use the word passion. So normally, uh, in 2020, when someone talks about passion, we talk about Tony Robbins and you know, rah rah rah, you can do anything, you can do it. This matters. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Motivation sort of passion. But if you look at the root of the word passion, where it comes from in the Latin. The word passion doesn't actually mean anything at all to do with motivation. It actually means suffering. It means to suffer. To suffer. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's why, I mean, I discovered this when I was writing a book about teenage girls and I was writing about the importance of compassion uh, because the, 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 the three letters, C-O-M, com, actually mean together or with somebody. So, you know, we're in oh. the company of others. We communicate. We're part of the community. C-O-M is with others. And passion means suffering. So when we have compassion, we actually suffer with somebody who's going through a hard time, uh, which I think is profound. And, and, and we can probably talk about that later if you wish. But, but in terms yeah. of what you've just said, finding our passion in life actually doesn't mean finding that thing that we're going to be really amped up about, really motivated to do. Because we all get motivated to do stuff, right? Like we get motivated to join the gym. Or we get motivated to get off sugar or to um, – start a new career or whatever it might be. But but that kind of motivation uh, doesn't necessarily last. Whereas true intrinsic autonomous motivation that is born of passion, it's actually born of suffering. And not not that I've suffered in any true sense of the word, you know, compared to uh, people who are suffering during a global pandemic or people who are yeah. suffering as a result of their race or their poverty or the injustices that they've experienced or the system that's worked against them. I'm not, I'm not even going to almost draw a parallel between myself and anyone who's gone through what I would call true, true suffering. Mm. I, I will just say though, that in terms of using this idea of finding work that we are passionate about, uh, what I think that we really are asking at, at its core is, can I find work that I'm willing to suffer for? Can I find work that I'm willing to give up my sleep for and give up my weekends for and give up my yeah. um, my, my time doing things that are enjoyable and uh, delightful for me because I'm so passionate about this? And when you find somebody – the, the word that is often banded around in this kind of context is finding a calling. Mm-hmm. When you find your calling, you are willing to suffer for it because you are passionate about it. That, that's uh, that, you know, what that, I mean that, in that context because I, I was trying to think about – the suffer, I think I was thinking, you know, is it what you suffer that you should go and do because it will make you better? Or you're saying that it's more that you're willing to do it so much that other things in your life will suffer? Yeah, well, well, and, and that's, I guess that's the dark side of what we might call having a calling. There are many people yeah. who say, I'm called, this is my life mission, my life calling, and, and their families do suffer. Yeah, okay. uh, and, and it's been a great challenge for, for me over the last, well, well, since the early 2000s when I quit radio and went back to school, uh, coming up on 20 years. It's been a real challenge for me and something that I think that I'm only just starting to get on top of after 20 years. Uh, my family has been, they've, they've paid a steep price, as have yeah. I, for the for the learning and the knowledge and the effort and the time and the building and the and all that sort of stuff. Um uh, you know, that's that's what suffering sometimes requires. But but it's been worth it. They would say it, and I would say it. But the legacy of, of this work uh, is is just it's just wonderful. It's it's hard to put into words. Well, it certainly is wonderful. And and when I think about another reason why I think that you know you're so good at what you do is also, I think that it's you're easily to like you're easily relatable. So we 
uh, as a as a parent going through it, like you're going through it, you've been through it, you're doing it uh, yourself, but you're also out there teaching it is is something that also gives some real merit um, and just that um, yeah that authenticity to what you're doing. Yeah, thanks, Sam. I I I've, I'm just a normal dad. Yeah. It's just that I've read a few more books and done a few more studies than the average. Uh, parent, but I'm just a normal dad. You know, I still have kids that drive me up the wall and fight with each other and won't eat their dinner and <laughs> won't stop talking while I'm trying to have a conversation with my wife for just two minutes. For goodness sake, could you leave me alone, please? You know, like <sighs> we, we all go through this stuff, and and I'm no different. And I want to be really transparent with people when I'm helping them. You know, sometimes yeah. a parent will say to me, "What do I do about this situation?" And and I'll just say, "There's there's no answer to this." And this is this is called life. It's just hard. It's meant to be. And what you're going to do is for the next six months or 12 months or 24 months, you're going to work with your child and love them and they're going to drive you off the wall and then they'll grow out of it. Uh, just recently, I was working with a mum whose daughter uh, has borderline personality disorder. Uh, she's going through a really significant gender identity crisis and has come out as gay, only to change her mind and decide that she wants to transition from being a female to a male. Uh, this mum has a, a strong faith background and is really struggling from a, you know, a sort of a values uh, perspective. So she's going through all of that, but wanting to support her daughter. And, and she came to me and said, I need help. Uh, and, and my response to her was, well, you probably need to go and work through some therapy rather than just having a one-off consult with me yeah. uh, because I, I can't help you. But what I did say to her was there, there is no quick fix. You know, this yeah. mum really wanted an answer and she wanted it by the end of our conversation. I just said, this, this thing's going to be a lifetime. Uh, we've got to help you to learn how to manage it and build your relationship because we're not going to fix you or fix your daughter. Mm. Uh, that's the wrong approach. And she, she just wanted an answer. She wanted a quick fix. And so, uh, you know, it's important whether we're dealing with a, a tantruming two-year-old or a teenager who's going through the enormous challenges that I've just described. Yeah. I think it's really important to be real and uh, let let parents know that this is just what life is sometimes. Let's let's do what we can to, to support you. And how much is it in those instances when when families or parents come to you? How much is it also getting them to look internally to their own values and beliefs and then what they're projecting versus you know they probably they're probably coming because their teens got a problem or their kids got a problem when in fact there's probably something that's reflecting back off them. Is that is that pretty common? Yeah, I think that that's most of the time. Sam. I mean, I, I just, yeah, I, I, I've got this little phrase that I say. It's actually, I, I don't know if it sounds good or not, but I, I say it because it just makes sense. But I often say parenting is about parents. Yeah. If it was about children, we'd call it childrening. Yeah, good one. Yeah, and, and so I, I, I guess what I'm really, I, I had a dad. He was um, on the Sunshine Coast. Uh, he'd had a blue with his teenage daughter. They were angry with each other and he'd gotten physical with her and actually pushed her up against the wall and held her there, elevated off the floor, oh. while he yelled at her until she managed to sort of wriggle free and she'd said, I'm never coming back, and she'd run out of the house. And next thing you know, I've got this mum and dad sitting in front of me saying, how are we going to fix this and what are we going to do? And um, it was a it was a pretty tough conversation. But as the conversation progressed, the dad, we'll call, him, um, we'll call him Michael, Michael just became increasingly defensive because in his eyes, it was all his daughter's fault. And no matter what I shared with him about the way we respond to people, influencing the way they'll eventually act towards us, he was just so adamant that she was the one that needed to change. Mm. And I remember saying something like, I said, Michael, maybe our thinking another person is the problem actually makes us the problem. Wow. But he didn't like <laughs> that. Did he, like that? <laughs> he didn't like that at all because it was all her fault. Yeah. Uh, and, and yet as we stepped through his story and, and I won't bore you with all the details of that particular incident, but as, as we stepped through that story, there must've been at least four or five opportunities that Michael had 
to avert disaster, to turn towards his daughter with love or compassion or patience or forbearance. There was so much that he could have done, but because of the way he responded to her, she ended up responding to him in an increasingly retaliatory and inflammatory way. And that spiral escalated until she ran away and swore that she'd never come back home while ever he was there. And do you get the follow-ups from those to hear that things have turned out okay? And, I mean, is there some sort of going back process that you double-check that they're all going well? And, and Sometimes. I mean, I don't really do that work anymore. Uh, it's kind of rare that I do that sort of uh, one-on-one work nowadays. Uh, but but from time to time, you, you know, I, what I often find, and this is something that anyone who works in therapy would be used to hearing, is that parents will often come to me and complain about their children because they want me to reassure them that they're doing the right thing, yeah. that they're doing well as parents, right. that it's all the kids' fault. Uh, and and they don't really want to hear the advice of the parenting expert. They want to just tell me what they think and what they're going to do next time, and, and they want me to reassure them that they're good people. And, and what I usually find at that follow-up stage, or what I used to find when I was doing that work, is quite often I'd follow up with people, and they wouldn't have done their homework. They won't have done the things that we agreed would be useful in restoring and repairing relationships and moving the family to a better place. And And it was because they didn't want be told what to do and they didn't even necessarily want to work on solutions collaborative they just wanted to be told that they were doing okay and i think that really goes to the the very core of what people who work in in mental health are dealing with whether they're dealing with adolescents and children or whether they're dealing with adults people don't want to be fixed people want to think that they're okay the way they are and that it's the people around them that are the problem and that is the problem but when we point that problem out to people and tell them that they're the problem because they think that the other person's the problem. They, they don't yeah. like that. And neither do I, by the way. I, I struggle with that from time to time as well when people point out to me that I might be the problem here. <laughs> um, and that's just, that's just human nature. The great challenge that we have, therefore, as people who work in mental health, is to spend time building a relationship of trust and work with a person to the point that they actually are either able to find those insights for themselves or genuinely say to us, I'm ready. I'll do whatever I need to do now because I, I, I get that I don't have the answers within myself. Do you reckon there's a slight distinction between willingness to be fixed versus open to change? Like, do you, do, do you think people also, uh, it might be the same thing, but, but they're unwilling to want to change who they are or how they're behaving? Is that, is that a key factor or you think it's, it's sort of tied in there with linked to the being the problem? Yeah, I... I think that just yeah, I, I'm kind of gonna I'm gonna answer the question differently, not by ignoring the question, but by providing perhaps a different way of looking at it. What I've found is that the people who make the most progress are those who are humble. I, I think that humility may be one of the most profoundly important relationship characteristics that a person can possess or personal characteristics that a person can possess in order to improve a relationship. Now, now there are times where being humble, there are times where humility will work against somebody. You know, they become a doormat, they become a martyr because they're too humble. But a person who has humility in a generally positive or generally safe, generally equal, non-abusive relationship is typically going to be far more effective in both their own personal development and also in repairing and restoring the relationship when it breaks down than a person who hangs on to pride and justification and defensiveness. Humility, I think, is one of the most central characteristics of those whose relationships improve and, and whose character improves as a result of those relationships. That's a great point. It's <clears throat> a really good point, actually. Uh, and that uh, people coming to you with that humility, I guess, would be uh, as opposed to the opposite. I mean, you must notice a difference in growth and progress that they make in shorter time periods than others. Oh, without question. Yeah. Again, I don't do that one-on-one work anymore, but over the years that I've uh, counseled and coached and worked with a variety of uh, people for any number of relationship skills, the ones who are humble, uh, they make progress. 
Not necessarily quickly because yeah. whenever you try to implement something new, especially in a relationship where there are deeply embedded patterns and, you know, the, the two partners in the relationship, the two adults are, are so used to dealing with challenges in a certain way. It's hard to get out of that, that pattern or that rut. It's, it's such a challenge. But boy, oh boy, when, uh, when we get that right, it's, it's profound in terms of how how quickly we can change. Whereas the people who are prideful uh, and who are certain that the other person's at fault and who won't listen and aren't interested in improving themselves, they just think the other person needs to improve themselves and then everything will be okay. Um, well, it's really hard to change when you've got that level of um, pride and arrogance and certainty that you're okay and the problem's everybody else. Justin, do you think uh, like parenting in now, I mean, I don't know historically how it's changed too much, uh, but I mean, it seems to be with so much information available and around you and books you should read versus, you know, YouTube, um, all these different clips you watch versus other people's parenting styles comparing with yours. I mean, there's so much stuff as a parent to be taking on board I mean, do you think it's more and more difficult these days than what it ever has been? Or do you think it's always been there? It's just in different ways as far as the challenges of parenting go. There, there are um, documented sources, um, academically you know, documented sources going back hundreds and also thousands of years of people complaining about how hard it is to be a parent. So I don't necessarily think that parenting has changed from a degree of difficulty perspective. Mm. It's always been hard to raise kids. But a few things have changed. One of them is that uh, we raise our children for a lot longer today. And as we're raising them, the level of dependence that they have on us and the degree to which we are responsible for all that they do, well, that's gone up as well. Is that right? You know, if, if, we, if, we, if we stereotypically go back to, say, the the 1600s or the 1700s, parents raised their kids and the kids helped out around the household and they you know, worked on the farm and by the time they were 12 in, in pre-industrial England, they were, you know, they, they were working in the mines, for example. You know, we hear all those horror stories from, from way back then yeah. or uh, they were working out of the farm or in the 1800s, they went and got a job in a print shop or in a warehouse or a factory somewhere or down on the docks. And then even if we go forward to, say, the 1950s, um, parents would say, "All right, kids. Well, you know, I know I'm being a little bit, a little bit simplistic and nostalgic and romanticising a bit, but you know, it was the whole go ride your bike, play in the park with your friends in the street till the lights come on, and then come home for dinner." Uh, now, I, I don't know that it was ever quite that simple, but what I would say is that we seem to have complicated raising children substantially over the last thirty or forty years. Uh, in terms of the the additional load in terms of extracurricular activities, the additional pressure around schooling and the expectation of academic excellence, the additional pressure around expectations for competition and winning and being enough, uh, representing the school in the cross country or the, uh, the, the football or the netball or the tennis or the whatever it is that your school does and has that center for excellence for, um, We've got parents who are both working in an employed uh, circumstance outside the home. And, and, and by the way, I'm not making any moral judgments here, none no. whatsoever. I'm simply highlighting that, yeah. that the family is busier and that we're, we're traveling greater distances and there are more bookings and more appointments and more expectations. And, and so from that point of view, yeah, parenting has changed. And then you throw in technology, put that into the mix as well. Uh, and we've just got such a different way uh, our environment for raising children has has it's it's never been more different than what it has traditionally been for millennia uh, the last century uh, has has upended everything about parenting and and, and so you know even things like discipline Sam, mm. with, with discipline there's plenty of evidence that um, discipline was pretty ugly for kids historically yeah uh, but there's also plenty of evidence that before we were industrial, uh, that the, the kids kind of just, um, they got on with it. They There wasn't really a need for discipline so much. The kids just fitted into the family lifestyle, let's say, on the farm. They just did what had to be done. Uh, and it wasn't until we started schools and we started standardizing and we started doing what we do today that things changed so much. That's interesting. And do you think some of these 
pressures on parenting or the changes, do you think that's systemic from that expectation with the with the curriculum, with the school systems, or or and you, or do you think it it could be and or with with the pressures we're now putting on ourselves and and having those external expectations, uh, maybe to stand up and meet up, um, try and hold hold that level of uh, of accountability to to try and perform at that level with our kids. Or to, to there are so many things, yeah, so many things that fit into the mix here, Sam. We want the very best for our kids. Every parent has the best of intentions for their child. Well, most parents, uh, almost every parent. Uh, we've got so much on our plate, though. And you know, there, there's there's something that I, I talk to parents about all the time, and that is that as our emotions go up, our intelligence goes down. Mm-hmm. Now, that's... That's a really broad brush stroke, and and I know that there's going to be somebody who's listening to this who's very analytic, saying, "Well, that's not always the case," and and that's that is true. But but as a general rule of thumb, it's a pretty useful way of looking thing, looking at things. And so, if we consider our lives on any given, let's pick a day, Wednesday night mm. or Thursday morning. Let, let's start with the mornings. You know, we we get the kids up. Uh, they're 15 minutes late because they wouldn't get out of bed on time. We've got to get out the door so that we can get to work. They've got to get to school. We know if we're not out the door by 7.23, we're going to get the lights at the main road down the down the street. And if we get those lights, we're going to get the kids to school four minutes later than we should. And if we get them to school four minutes later than we should, we're going to end up in bumper-to-bumper traffic and it's going to be a horrendous run. We're going to end up being 20 minutes late for work. We've just got to get out the door by this time. And, you know, and so there's all that pressure. And with that pressure, our emotions go up. You know, high emotions, which means that intelligence goes down. Not just cognitive intelligence, but I'm going to suggest social and emotional intelligence as well. Yeah. And so when our children start to, I don't know, whinge and complain, or they say they're cold, or they can't walk because they're tired and their legs are hurting, or they don't want that for breakfast, or they want the pink bowl, not the green bowl, <laughs> or, you know, you, you cut my toast into triangles and I wanted rectangles, <laughs> that kind of thing. And, and, and that's a rookie error. I, I have to say this, Dan, if you're cutting toast to your little one, Always go with rectangles first because if they want triangles, it's just one diagonal and you've got triangles. I've been in that position. I'm sure every other parent has as well. It's a, yeah. it's a definite but if you, no-no. If you start with triangles, you try and make a rectangle out of a triangle. I mean, good luck with that. <laughs> you've got to start again. Anyway, and, and so you, you're feeling all of this pressure. And so when your child starts to have a bit of a moment, which they inevitably will yeah. on many mornings, we tend not to respond with that compassion that we talked about earlier. We tend not to respond with the emotional intelligence that they need where we stop and we pause and with soft eyes and a gentle voice, we say, you're really struggling this morning, aren't you? How can I help? Instead, we say, stop your whinging and put your jumper on. What do you mean you can't find your jumper? That's the third jumper you've lost this year. We're going to be late. I'm in a rush. Hurry up. Yeah, that's it. And, And so emotions go up, intelligence goes down and, and our relationship with our child suffers and their sense of self-worth suffers because the more critical we are of them, they don't think less of us for being critical of them. They don't, oh, gee, you're always on my case. You're a very critical person. They don't think less of us. They think less of themselves. Yeah, right. Because we become their inner voice because we're constantly telling them. And so so I think that, I don't know, I don't, I don't know that I can say this categorically, but I think that as a general rule, Parenting has become more stressed because our lives have become more pressured. We have less margin. We have more uh, time demands. And even when we don't have time demands, Sam, we, we get caught up in administrivia. You know, we've mm. just got to check that email. We just want to quickly finish watching that funny clip on Facebook or on Twitter or on YouTube or on whatever it is that our social media account is that you know magnetizes us. All of these things, again, force away from being present, being mindful, being connected. And then all of a sudden something happens because we weren't supervising the kids or being in the moment with them. <laughs> and, and we're not letting them go out in the street and play. We're not letting them go and climb trees in the forest nearby or in the park nearby. We're keeping them at home because that's where they're safe, right? And, and, and so then they do something that troubles us. And why are they doing it? Because they're bored and they're understimulated. And, you know, they've only got screens or their bike riding up and down the path on our quarter acre block, if we're lucky, 600 square meters in the backyard. Um, and, and then we get cranky at them. I'm like, oh, for goodness sakes, how many times have I got to tell you? And it's just so – the world, I don't think, is particularly child-friendly. We've got a system that's not helpful. Mm-hmm. And then you throw in, well, you haven't done your homework. Why aren't you doing your homework? 
And like, oh, I don't know how. And then we look at it and let's say they're in grade five. We realize we don't know how either. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Yeah, I've been in that position. We're not even, we're not even past grade three. <laughs> right that's it yeah so i don't know that i've got a real answer for you except to yeah. say that as parents um we're, we're up against it so we've got a we've got a society and a system that actively works against our ability to really be present engaged and actively involved with our parents our children uh, and help them to have wonderful outcomes uh, we've got a school system that also works against you know in, in school they're taught that there's right and wrong answers you taught that you, if you're in an exam, you're not allowed to ask somebody for help. I mean, you just think, think about those two things mm. in life. How often are you in a situation where you can't ask someone for help, really? Yeah. And, 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 and how often is the situation that you're encountering with your wife or your husband or your partner or your neighbor next door who's angry about the dogs barking, how often is there just one right answer? Yeah. And, and yet that's what, we, that's what we do in school. You know, we teach them that they're only as good as their grades. And we teach them to have a growth, growth mindset, but then we set up a system that actively discourages growth mindset and it's all about fixed mindset and all about getting the grade and looking good and achieving and performing. And so, so we understand the psychology, but our system actively, actively works against what good psychology teaches us our kids need. And I'm keen to see uh, what sort of tips and stuff that you, uh, you do, obviously you embrace in your own family setting as well. But I just want to ask about um, back to the parenting stuff with how important is it the signals as a parent with what you're giving exuding to in front of your kids whether it's you with your own device or you're you're being present or not being present but also not just that but also you and your relationship with your partner f- for those parents that that still have partners obviously but I mean how, how important is that relationship to be real but also you know to be a loving one and the impact that that can have on your kids i just i love i love talking about this i think that it's so vital that we do all that we can to honor the relationships that we share with our partner in front of our children Uh, our children should see us being affectionate Um, they should see us and hear us speaking only lovingly Um, research shows that kids that are confronted with high levels of unpredictability and insecurity in the parental relationship uh, tend to uh, be less likely to be resilient, tend to be less likely to thrive. Uh, they, they just don't do as well. The, the marital or partnered relationship that we share with our children's uh, other caregiver is just so important. Uh, I, I can't I can't overstate how important it is. Uh, now, that's the second part of your question. The first part of the question was probably more related to just how we're relating to our children. At least that's, that's what I recall you asking, Sam. Yeah, and, whether it's your phone technology or whether it's just the way you're talking, like just our, our behaviors and the modeling that that, I mean, because the kids can see and hear a lot of things more so than sure what we're just can. saying, right? Yeah, yeah. I... Uh, I was just listening to a podcast the other day and a clip came up from Oprah Winfrey talking with Tony Morrison from many, many, many years ago. Uh, and I've heard it before and it's something that I've tried to implement in my own life. But hearing it again, it just came alive for me in such a beautiful way. And in this clip, Tony Morrison talks about how as a mum, she was always saying to her kids, fix up your hair, tuck your shirt in, tie up your shoelaces. Because she loves the kids and she wants them to be presentable and to look good and, and so on. And, and she said that she, I can't remember if it was her or her grandma or somebody in her life said, when your children walk into the room, do your eyes light up when you see them? Mm. When you look at them, are you filled with awe and wonder and joy and delight? How do we respond to them? And if, if our face is buried in our iPad, we're not going to delight in seeing them because we're not even going to notice them. And, and, you know, it's something that I've encouraged in my own home. It's something that I practice as, as best I can. When my kids come into the room, I want them to see genuine delight. And delight's not a word we use often enough, but I want them to see genuine delight in my face that they've come to pay me a visit. I want them to hear it when they call me on the phone that I'm so excited that they've rung me to say hi. Uh, you know, one of my kids 
uh, and only one, surprisingly, even though I, they all hear the same response. One of my kids, my 12-year-old, Annie, she'll often say, Dad, can I ask you a question? The other kids just launch in with the question, but Annie always asks, <laughs> can I ask you a question? And, and my response to her 100% of the time is, Annie, I love your questions. <laughs> what would you like to ask? Because I want her to know that there's never going to be a time that I'm going to refuse to answer her question. I'm not going to push her away. I'm not going to turn against her and say, no, you can't right now. I'm busy. I want her to know that her questions are not just welcome, but there's something that I delight in because they're a chance to connect. Mm. Yeah, that's that's really that's pretty, it's amazing actually when you use that word genuine delight when the kids walk into the room because it's it's so it's so easy to get busy and do your thing that you forget uh, in the moment to be there and in that frame of mind where you mentioned you know, I love your questions, to be able to go to that as a as an automatic default, no matter what you're doing or what state of mind you're in. I mean, that's, uh, I don't, I can see why that would be pretty effective. Yeah, it's just nice to really connect that way. What, tell me about, um, if we look at mental health and well-being for kids, what, what do you think are the biggest challenges that we're currently facing? As parents, uh, I, you know, everyone talks about anxiety and depression, and mm. not for a moment would I discount them. They're enormous challenges. Uh, what I see most, and, and, and again, this may just be a reflection of the people that I talk to. It yeah. it, it, it may not be uh, what the biggest issue is, but from the people that I talk to, I I just. I see a couple of things. First of all, I see enormous stress. Parents are working very, very, very hard, uh, which reduces their margin. It reduces their downtime. It reduces their opportunities for uh, real rest, recovery, regeneration, recuperation. But aligned with that, I'm also seeing uh, an increase in unhealthy habits around that rest time. So instead of going to bed early, to catch up on sleep. Instead of getting out and getting green time, parents are having more screen time. Uh, they're actively undermining themselves in, in too many cases, and that only adds the civil well of stress. Uh, you know, as a family, we've started going camping instead of staying in hotels when we go on holidays. I hate camping. <laughs> but in spite of the fact that I need to go and see the osteo and get my neck fixed every time I go camping because I don't sleep on that mattress properly. Um, there's something about waking up with the sun and walking down to the beach and watching the sunrise or going on bike rides and hikes with the kids and being in nature and having that reduced access to screens that's remarkable. So, so that would be the first thing. I think that the second thing that I'm seeing is an incredible lack of in, uh, an incredible insecurity lack of confidence around the parenting role. Mm. I think parents are really struggling with how to get this parenting thing right. Uh, you know, the, the, there, there's a recognition that much of what our parents did with the very best of intentions was not optimal, mm. but now there's a desire for parents to be optimal. My concern, though, is that they're trying to be optimal not so that they can be great parents and have great families, but because they want an outcome in their children. They want their children to be well and to do well uh, rather than just to, to actually be well. I think that's a, a big difference. Uh, they, they want their children to, to be getting those outcomes, to be doing well at school so that they can uh, get great results. But being well is different. Being well is that well-being that comes from knowing that you matter, knowing that you belong, having those great connections. And, and knowing that there's a purpose to your life. You belong to something bigger than just yourself. Yeah. Well, that's beautifully put. And, and if we look, now look to the solution side, what, what are some things that you find, some tips, uh, some things that you recommend for people in order to overcome some of those challenges, being present um, to to be able to make sure that, that you are, you know, rest times doing it the right way or the, or the – um, you know, giving yourself the best chance to to have that happiness in your family that you so, you so often talk about. 
I had a dad come to me uh, after a presentation pre pre COVID <laughs> when, when when I was still allowed to do presentations because people weren't all going to uh, get some pandemic disease that was going to yeah. uh, destroy their lives. Um, and and he said to me, my teenage son, uh, he used to be my best mate. We we used to be such good friends. I used to love being with him, and he used to love being with me. And we just we don't talk anymore. We don't have a relationship. He's fourteen or fifteen or whatever it was, and he just said, "I I don't know how to connect with him anymore." Uh, and he doesn't talk to me, and he's got attitude. And I, I think that what that man's describing is symptomatic of what many parents go through at different ages and stages with their children. And so I just said to him, "Well, let me ask you a question. When was the last time that you spent some time with him in nature?" with no agenda, just you and him on a bike ride or on an overnight camp or on a hike or in a kayak mm-hmm. or just somewhere where it's just the two of you. And he looked at me like I was from another planet. Wow. <laughs> he sort of paused for a minute and said, I reckon it's been at least five years, maybe more, maybe six or seven. I said, okay, well, there's your homework. Spend one-on-one time with your kids spend that time in an environment where there are no distractions, where you're not surrounded by four walls, but where you're just together. I really believe that that is at the very heart of most of our challenges. Yeah, most kids behave in challenging ways because they're feeling challenged, and the way that they feel most challenged is they don't feel connected. If we can just build stronger connections with that, is, is that going to solve every problem? No, of course it's not. Mm. It's not going to solve some of the terrible challenges that so many children face. But I think that it'll probably solve about 80% of them. As I've worked with families over the last 10 years or so and studied this for nearly 20, uh, I really believe that at the very core of most suffering in relationships is connection. I say this uh, frequently, just like dollars are the currency of our economy, connection is the currency of our relationships. And I think you also said somewhere before, maybe it was one of your clips that I've seen you uh, speak on, uh, that kids spell love, T-I-M-E. Yeah, that's not mine. I, I got that from an article that I read you know, probably 20 years ago. Uh, but but I, I just love that. Kids spell love, T-I-M-E. They don't, spend, they don't spell it, you know, buy me lollies, or they'll <laughs> take me on expensive holidays to the Swiss Alps. They, they spell love, T-I-M-E. In fact, I, <laughs> one of my favorite stories, a dad came to me, his name was Trevor. He said, um, I want to tell you about this whole kids still love T-I-M-E thing. I said, yeah, shoot. He said, well, we've just come back from the United States. We've saved up our money. We've gone over. We've done Disneyland, the Grand Canyon, you know, all this stuff. They did. They just had such a great time. Four weeks in the U.S., uh, absolutely living it up. Came back via Hawaii, you know, all that sort of stuff. He said, after their four weeks away across the um, – this, this holiday period, uh, there was one day left after they got home and had unpacked and kind of got over the jet lag, one day left until school went back. And his wife said, you've got the kids, I've got stuff to do, take care of them. And so he went into town and they just jumped on one of those free city loop buses, mm-hmm. did the city loop, you know, down past the beaches and through the city and out to the university and all that kind of thing. And um, the next day at school, the kids have shown up to class. Trevor's dropped them off at school. And the teacher said, how was your holiday? She knew that they'd been to Disneyland. And the kids were like, oh, it was awesome. And she said, what was your favorite part? And their response was, catching the bus with Dad yesterday. Oh, wow. Now, now, now the bus was free. <laughs> and yeah. he didn't have to spend any, anything except sit on the bus with the kids. I know that there's that thing called recency effects. I know that sometimes <laughs> we just recall what just happened because it's top of mind. Yeah. But Disneyland should be pretty top of mind. Right, and when when he talks to the kids with his wife that night at the dinner table about that answer, they pointed out a couple of things. And they just said, we love Disneyland. And yeah, that was amazing. And, and it was brilliant. But the whole time we were in America, we were stressed and we were going a million miles an hour. And you were always worried. And you were telling us we couldn't buy this or we had to be there and we had to do that. And, you know, it was, it was I mean, they were only young kids. They were about eight and five or, you know, nine and six. They were around that age. But. It was that kind of thing where they were saying, you were always busy and we were always so tired and there was so much to do and it was awesome and we loved it. And he said, well, what did you love about the, the, the bus ride? And they said, it was 
you, we just got to talk to you. <laughs> we just got to be with you. Wow. And, and, and essentially, you know, in, in adult terms, we're saying we connected. There was no agenda. We just got to enjoy our relationship. And that's that's such a good story. Uh, and obviously, if we had known that was a secret, we'd all save some money uh, in, in those <laughs> yeah. fancy things that we try and do and think, oh, they'll love this. But you're right. Sometimes just uh, doing some simple things and connecting uh, has the most impact, which which is really interesting really interesting to hear tell me about um before as we sort of head towards the straight what what's some of the key tips for happiness in a family what what are some of the just some of the big things broadly speaking that you say here are the the top five things or the top so many things that you think are some of the big items that you should focus on in order to try and strive for that happiness well i want to say something a little bit provocative before i launch into any kind of list and that is that the data since the 19s, like late 70s, early 80s, has highlighted that parenting and happiness don't mix. Wow. That is, there's, a, there's actually a negative correlation between being a parent and being happy. As adults, uh, we're going to find that our children, more often than not, are going to make us miserable, not happy. When we measure happiness as a, you know experience of positive affect uh, and absence of negative affect, and that's because our kids... Uh, they drive us crazy. You know, from the minute they're born, they scream, they won't eat their food, they dirty their nappies, they won't sleep through the night, uh, they can't make friends, or they you know bite somebody at preschool, or they they get to school and they've got a learning disorder, or they um, have low motivation, or you know, they they start using bad words, or they start showing all the other kids pornography, or you know once once we're in grade seven or grade eight, all of a sudden we find out that they've been the one that's been supplying alcohol to everybody else. They've been uh, shoplisting, like kids, kids are pretty darn hard work. Yeah, and, and the, the the data is consistent, and it has been for four decades now that they are such hard work that our well being generally drops off. Research shows clearly that well being increases on the part of parents when the children leave home. Now, this this, this is not trying to be controversial. This is just yeah. this is empirical data across four decades now. Having children does not make us happy. But what it does is it imbues our lives with tremendous meaning if we let it. And over time, that meaning makes us far happier than any in-the-moment sleeping and coffee and <laughs> brunch and the fancy cafe and all that kind of thing. Uh, over time, our children make us far happier uh, than, than they do in the moment. And I think that's that's a critical thing to bear in mind. If family life is challenging and you want it to be happier, well, 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 I hope that it can be, but it won't always be. In fact, most of the time it's meant to be challenging. So I think I'd say a couple of things. Number one, if we want our families to be happier, we need to spend time together. Number two, we need to be compassionate. When our children are struggling, it's because they're having a struggle. Most of the time our kids actually do want to do the very best that they can. <laughs> I say that most of the time. Yep. Uh, and when they get it wrong, they don't need a critic. They don't need a judge. They don't need us to step in and be the police judge and jury. What they need is a compassionate parent who says, I can see that this is a struggle for you. I'm here to help. It doesn't mean that we do everything for them, by the way. When they tell us how we can help, we might say to them, well, let me support you, but You've got to do this yourself. They'll be here to guide you. So I would say that we need to do that. The third thing that I would say is the happiest families actually get discipline right, uh, which means that we, we we try to avoid punishment. We try to avoid coercion. And what we do instead is we work very, very hard on teaching our children good ways to act. The best definition of discipline that I know is that we well, – well, punishment means to hurt. Discipline means to help. Because discipline's about teaching and guiding and instructing, whereas punishment's about inducting retribution. And so the happiest families are the ones that avoid punishment, hurting, and focus more on discipline, teaching, guiding, instructing, helping. Uh, and that means that parents spend time in the relationship rather than just, I don't know, uh, telling the kids to <laughs> pick up their game and get on with it. Um, so, so they're probably the, the main things, and, and maybe more than anything, the happiest families that I've studied, and I've studied well over a thousand Australian families from an academic perspective. The happiest families that I know are the ones who um, 
they just find ways to have fun. They're light. Mm. And they find delight in the moments that they're together. They enjoy talking. They enjoy one another's company. They just like each other. It's it's so simple, but when you really think about it, I mean, there's so much, uh, I know just as a parent myself that I can take away from it, but uh, I mean, the one you said also before where because sometimes you feel like you're, if you're always talking at them, you're never talking to them. And and it feels like the relationship uh, is is much uh, much more enriched when you actually get to have a conversation with them rather than feel like you're busy telling them and talking at them not to do something or do that or do, you know so it's it's so easy that you get wound up in that role but at the same time when you sit and think about it so powerful if you actually take that um, that mindset that you just said and that simple shift um, and those those points that you made are very very good Sam I, I think about the bucket right I mean we have a bucket so it can carry water and that water represents the connection of our relationship, the air in the bucket. That's the correction and direction. And and so a question that I like to ask parents is, think about your morning with your kids this morning, how much water went into your bucket and how much air was in the bucket? That is, how much connection did you have versus how much correction and direction was there? And if your morning is mostly correction and direction, and let's face it, in most households it is, what can you do to change that? I reckon the best way, by the way, to create more connection is to actually focus on asking the question, how can I help? What are you up to this morning? What do you need help with? Let's do it together. That's how we create connection. We position ourselves as as our children's ally, not their enemy. But even just the awareness of that, Justin, I mean, if if you actually, if that thought popped into your head, if you you think, well, hang on, at the moment, am I correcting, directing, or am I more connecting with my kids? Just that awareness makes it, all of a sudden pop in your head that it shifts your focus, doesn't it? It, it, it does, or it should. And, and if we can get that right, what's going to happen is that we're going to find ourselves um, very, very gently uh, doing less talking to yeah. at and more talking with. That, that completely makes sense. And as we wrap it up, I just want to, I want to just ask a few quick questions. One is, who has been a source of your inspiration? Uh, has it been someone, a couple of people? Is it something you've read, someone you met? Is it um, what is what keeps Justin going, and, and who's been a big source of inspiration to get you to where you are? Um, you know, I find my inspiration from as many different sources as I can. I read yeah. very, 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 very widely uh, and very deeply and heavily in in the psychology area, but also more broadly than that. Uh, because I, I want to find inspiration as much as I can. In the early days, by the way, um, two people at opposite ends of the political spectrum, I guess you'd say, were the, the, the big influences. Uh, there's a, a, a religious guy by the name of Professor H. Wallace Goddard who's writing, uh, I discovered, quite by accident and just loved what he had to say. And at the other end of the spectrum, there's a guy called Alfie Cohn, He's a, a, a Boston liberal um, and he is iconoclastic and polemic and I was absolutely um, absolutely taken with what he had to say as well. So they were my early influences and they still remain influential, but now uh, I'm influenced by people far and wide. Well, the fact that you remain open to learning and, and continue to, to study and, and – uh, seek to improve. I mean, that in itself uh, speaks volume as well, Justin, for someone that uh, is constantly looking to learn and grow. So, um, so my congratulations on that. And is there any particular books that you would recommend for people um, to get out there? I know you've got a number of books. Did you mention, uh, want to give a couple of those a plug? Uh, so all my books are at happyfamilies.com.au. Uh, I've uh, written one about resilience, called Nine Ways to a Resilient Child. Many of the things that we've talked about today are found in uh, 21 Days to a Happier Family or 10 Things Every Parent Needs to Know. My publisher really likes numbers. Uh, <laughs> the, the most recent book that I've written is called Misconnection, Why Your Teenage Daughter Hates You, Expects the World and Needs to Talk. Last question, uh, what does the future hold? What are you up to? What's the plan? Um, and how can um, people get in touch? Uh, I just am here to help 
families be happier. It's really that simple. So I continue to write books. I continue to speak. My social media channels are full of free advice. We have a membership uh, that we offer through our website that many, many people are taking advantage of and, and getting great value from. Uh, and that's where all of my most premium content tends to uh, be be stored now. Um, so, so going forward, just more of the same, you know, just talking to families, talking to parents and trying to help build well-being, help build resilient kids and help make relationships at home strong. I think that that's the foundation. Uh, if people want to find out more, um, Google my name. Everything will lead to me. I think I'm the only Justin Coulson that has any kind of presence on Google at the moment. So <laughs> just Google me and you'll find me there. Excellent, Justin. And uh, I knew when I uh, when I read your when I read your bio and I knew the list of things that uh, you've been able to achieve and I, I first read uh, taught their children to sleep in their own beds, I knew this conversation was going to be worthwhile because I was I yet to find that secret. But um, mate, this conversation has been really really good for for me. Uh, and I'm sure for many of our listeners, um, and you used the term earlier on, genuine delight, and uh, that's exactly what this conversation has been on my behalf from my end. So uh, we appreciate having you on the on the show and on the episode, and thanks very much for taking some time. Awesome to be with you, Sam. Thanks so much. Thanks, Justin. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.